Okay, Hebrews 10 is where we'll camp out today. And again, when I get into it a little bit, you're going to say, why is he going there? Um, so, I'm just daunting this morning, you know. Uh, would you join me in thanking Brother Paul Burleson for the last couple of weeks? Wow. You know, the neat thing about this is I'm, I'm like, uh, you know, I lived for 12 years or so, 10 and a half years in, uh, in Kentucky. And uh, you remember the story about the farmer who tried to enter his mule in the Kentucky Derby. And uh, I feel about that the way I feel toward you, that they, as they were trying to check in the mule, the, the, uh, the people who were in charge of the race said, you know, uh, are you aware this is a mule and all these horses are thoroughbreds? Why in the world would you want to enter in the race? There's no way he can win. He said, I know he can't win, but the company will do him a lot of good. And just being around Paul makes me better, you know? So, all right. That's a Kentucky joke, right? That's yeah, kind of a Kentucky joke. So I'm going to make a statement here, and all of you are going to want to say, what? I got a little guy living in my backyard. Okay? He's been there for five or six weeks. And, um, and we decided on Thursday night, I think, yeah, Thursday night, to take the little guy to Johnny's. He's from Ohio. And... Um, it, it, I'm trying to introduce him when I can't. We haven't done a whole lot with him. He's just living back there. Okay, I can't wait for you to ask me this question. But, uh, but he's back there. His name, his name is, um, is uh, Jordan, and uh, he's living in our backyard. And so uh, we were head, I got home late. Uh, nothing was fixed. And I, we both said, you want to go to Johnny's? Yeah, sure. And uh, so I texted Jordan and said, you want to go get a burger? Yeah. So we're introducing him to Johnny's. And when I got through ordering my number seven, what's your number, by the way? One? Uh, nine. Okay. All right. Everybody's got a Johnny's number, right? There you go. Uh, when I got through ordering my number seven in onion rings, but, you know, um, I went over to, to get some ice out of the ice machine, which is now an elaborate, like, space-age Coke machine. I don't, I don't really get that. Okay? And it... Uh, it's more buttons than you need. Yeah. Uh, every combination imaginable. $30,000 worth. Uh, no kidding. Uh, I can imagine because it's all computerized and you can put this in your Coke or you can put this in that or you can mix Coke and Diet Coke, I guess, if you wanted to. And who would want to do that? But, but uh, you can put cherry in there. You can put... You can put um, uh, all, Vanilla, certainly in there. I, I can't, you know, I, one of the things I bet they don't have in there, Dan, when I was a kid, we occasionally would order a chocolate Coke. I bet they can't do that in there. You know, because Coke doesn't have enough sugar in it to start with, right? <laughs> Options, choice, variety. We're that kind of people, aren't we? Uh, it, if they had 17 different Sodas listed there. That wouldn't be enough. I got to have something else to put in it, right? That's kind of who we are. We live in that kind of society. But the truth is, it applies also, this choices deal also applies to commitments that are much more meaningful than what kind of soda I'm going to have with my Johnny's burger. In the realm of values and spirituality and political ideology, 
They've got a bewildering array of choices. And the culture in which we live encourages experimentation of that kind of stuff and a hesitancy to commit to anything. Larry, you're grinning. What's your number at Johnny's, Larry? Do you know? Number one, okay. All right. It's kind of the old-fashioned, as I recall. Now, the only real mistake is to give up on an option, give up on all the others, When I find out that that option is the right one, all of this can make the path of discipleship, of following Jesus, really difficult. In choosing to follow Christ, I've got to turn my back on that $30,000 Coke machine of other options. Yes. And the book of Hebrews is all about that. Pat? At what point are you going to tell us about the backyard? Thing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> Uh, I, maybe I can keep you dialed in if I, if I leave that. He's under a roof. Huh? He is under a roof. Uh, so we have a little cottage in our backyard that we fixed up for our daughter to live in to, for about a year, and she's now gone. And we, we've had a steady stream of folks living back there, it seems like, uh, mostly youth pastors. This guy's a youth pastor at a, at a sister church, and he's new to town, and they're between houses. And he's buying a house in Oklahoma City. So Jordan and Katie and uh, Ollie are living back there. So, I mean, this is a 387 square foot place, and it's got a family of three living back there. But the, but the little wife and child are gone right now, so we took him to Johnny's to introduce him to Johnny's. Okay. okay. Does that tell you? Does that, that work? Okay. All right. Okay. All right. So he's, he's well taken care of. It's got air conditioning. You know, it's got a refrigerator right there, all that stuff. So, all right, now, so the first century writer of Hebrews, and we could debate this all day. We won't get into that. But the first century writer of Hebrews has something to say to 21st century Christians about the Coke machine of other options that you and I have. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. This book is often called a letter, but it doesn't read like the other letters in the New Testament. That kind of mixes us up a little bit. It has a little bit of a greeting and a little bit of a conclusion, but not like a normal Pauline letter, for instance. And um, uh, instead, it relies on action verbs and that kind of thing all the way through. So there's one thought that the book of Hebrews was a sermon that somebody wrote down. Now, now, Paul, when you and I think about that, could it have been that this was one of Paul's sermons that somebody transcribed in their own Greek language? Because it's different from Paul's Greek a little bit. Could be, I don't know. But, but it's kind of when I think about it, it's, it's somebody writing down a sermon that was being preached. Um, maybe that's, that's some of it. So um, it was primarily, we think, maybe, some think, an oral address um, 13 of the New Testament's 19 uses of the underlying Greek word for exhortation occur in the book of Hebrews. Thir so all but six of the, of the word exhortations is there. Um, so it could be that this was the thing. So where we're going to pick it up today and we're going to finish this, um, this um, 
study of hope and faith today will be, by the way, if you want to read ahead, we'll be in Colossians 1 next week, um, is a point of transition from beginning this whole talk to making a transition to exhort us to do something about it, beginning in about 1019. Okay, so all the doctrine that has gone before reaches in 1019 a therefore. Okay, and we're going to deal with the therefore today, at least part of it. Okay, now, Steve Blair, you look very fetching in your t-shirt. Yeah, you won't be saying that in another three weeks. You won't even be in the same room with me. If I wash it, it's going to be too small. Yeah, okay. Uh, we'll just stand back a ways, Steve, after you've worn that thing for four weeks. Uh, can I get you to go to Hebrews 10 and read 23 down through 27? Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Okay, now I want you to look at how your verse 23 is, is written, okay? Mine is going to say that we need to hold fast without wavering to the hope we profess, okay? Yeah. Uh, the NIV has, uses another word. What, what are you looking at? What, what's the word for uh, that maybe in the New American Standard is translated without wavering, hope without wavering? What? Unswervingly. I love that word. That's, that's, you must be reading NIV, I think. Anybody else got another one? I looked this word up this week. Unswervingly. Let's, let's talk about that for a minute. So, um, what often happens when your car swerves? An accident. An accident. If I swerve into the other lane... You know what, by the way, some of us, Rhonda drives a car, drives a truck. That We want her, by the way, we want her doing damage if she hits somebody. So uh, she drives a truck, and um, she's got a thing there that if you go over the line, it shakes the steering wheel. Uh, which is very off-putting. And if, if you do it two or three times in a row, it says, would you like a cup of coffee? Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Um, so, uh, if you swerve, you're probably going to end up in an accident or on a di in a ditch, right? Uh, look at two one. Go back to two one. But as for you, I'm sorry. I went too far back. Went to Titus. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away from it. Uh, you're not going to swerve into a stronger faith. You're not going to drift into a greater hope quotient in your life. Not, you're going to have to be pretty intentional about that. So here's my question as we start down this 
passage today. When's the last time that reading the Bible changed your mind about something? When's the last time you were reading this and it was like, oh, wait a minute. I may need to change what I thought about that. Okay? The idea is holding on to your faith, holding on to your hope unswervingly. But I really like that word. I'm, I'm going to stay in the lane. I'm going I'm to intentionally pursue it. Um, okay, so we often zero in on verse 24 and 25, and I'm going to do this today without getting too stinky, okay? All right, verse 24 and 25, a lot of people use to kind of remind us that we need to go to church, okay? And that's kind of true, but this verse 24 that Steve read a bit ago is going to remind us that, that we're not, by the way, in your first blank, the temptation to swerve from the faith was strong. Okay, now. Would you accept drift? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Drift, swerve. Uh, waiver, you know, any of those, yeah. All right, all right, there you go. That's good. So far, you got, you got partial credit for that one, Brad. Uh, so, Brad tries to fill in the blanks before I ever get there. He's already, he was already working on the last blank when I got here this morning. So, all right, so this verse 24 that uh, follows up to that um, is, is going to say, consider, let us consider. How to stimulate one another. So the idea is here to pay attention to one another. The verse reminds us that we're not alone in serving God. Um, um, it, it's interesting. Here, love is concrete. It's an action. Okay, so I'm going to kind of help you put uh, flesh to this. You ready? Yeah. Have you said over the last year last month, maybe the last 18 months, okay? Have you said, have you looked around in here and said, I wonder where fill in the blank is. Yeah. I wonder how they are. Yeah. I have a hundred different times. In fact, I've looked at lists of things and tried to, you know, figure all that out. So the question is, if you've said that, if you've asked that question, where is, I wonder where, um, Mark, I'm going to pick on you. I wonder where Mark Fueling is or how Mark Fueling's doing. Have you called? Have you written a card and said, I just haven't seen you in a while. I want to make sure you're okay. Let us consider how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. Part of that is just being in paying attention to each other. If Miriam wasn't here for six weeks, I would miss her orange hat. <laughs> and lots of other things, Miriam, because you're my sister, and I love you. And shame on me if I haven't checked on you after six weeks if I haven't seen you. And by the way, she tells me that the uh, injection has helped some. They've given you some pills to kind of follow up with that, and, and pain's a little better at least. Okay, okay. Just we want to keep praying for you about that. Okay, so, verse 25, which we use a lot. Consider how you might spur one another on to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. There's that thing in verse 25. 
And it's talking here that literally about joining with others in worship and how foundational that is in building up your faith. Now, uh, I've probably told you this. I've had arguments with students in class before when we were, we were studying uh, Christian worship and how it's supposed to be done because, you know, the, 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 um, those that are 40 years younger than me think you can't do worship with the lights on. Uh. But I'm going to tell you, when I get in my perch at 930 in the balcony, I'm looking all around trying to see who's here. <laughs> checking. Yes. I'm checking. Bill, I'm missing seeing our friend Gary. I knew right where he sat. You know? And we hadn't talked for a long time. But, okay, so the idea here is that joining with others in worship is kind of this foundational thing. The temptation here in this book, in this letter, especially in this chapter, their number one temptation was to give up on Jesus. The tendency was to distance themselves from the community. Um, my mentoring pastor as a young man, Pastor Gary, used to say, you know what? You take a log out of the fire and eventually it goes out. You got a raging campfire going, you take one log and lay it away to the side. And I would imagine, Rhonda, he did enough youth camps over the years that he did this as an illustration. You put one log aside and eventually it goes out. It burns down to, to embers and, and it, the fire goes out. And so he says, why to do this is because we're approaching, and he says approaching, we got to see this, because we're approaching the day. And that ought to sound a bit ominous. Let's read a couple of passages that say this. Somebody go to Romans 13, 12. Thank you, John. And John 6, 39. Dan, you get it? John 6, 39? Okay. Um, this ought to sound a little bit ominous here. Okay. I'm going to read uh, what Steve read a bit for us ago. Just not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. John, read um, Romans 13, 12. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul thought the day was right around the corner. What's the day? When Jesus comes back. When he's coming back. Okay, let's see what, I think this is interesting because Jesus uses an expression, and I, I could pick it out of several different places, but I chose this one. Dan, if you would read um, John six thirty nine. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. My Savior, yours, the only one, says there will be, do you hear it? A last day. Think about that for a minute. Let that soak in. You know, we tend to think, I mean, I've got an iPhone that goes out to the year, you know, 3,000, I suppose. I don't know. I don't know. Now, we tend to think, that as things have always been, so they always shall be, yes. right? Yes. 
In fact, Jesus went after it at one point and said, you remember in uh, Noah's day, they were, you know, fat and sassy, living it up. Till the rain started. There will be, uh, you got to hear me on this. There will be a last day, and it's coming. I don't know when. By the way, if I or anybody else tells you when, run. Yeah. Run. I, I was working uh, in eastern Kentucky years ago, and I got a call from, an, uh, from a, a um, um, it was an ICU nurse, but it was, it was an intensive care psychological ward at the local hospital. And they called me because they knew I was a youth pastor in the area. And they said, we've got a 16-year-old that is about to come unraveled, and I just need you to come talk to her. I said, what's the deal? Her parents had read a book, something like 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988, and something like that. I mean, there was a book like that. And these parents had waved this over this girl's head and threatened her and threatened her and threatened her, and she literally had no hope for the future. Her theology was messed up. Her parents' theology was messed up. And they checked me into a place where all the doors were locked behind me <laughs> because they thought, maybe you can deprogram this a little bit. There will be a last day, but I don't know it. Can I let you in on a little secret? You don't know it either. Yeah. But it's coming. And so it's really important that we encourage one another because that day is approaching. Now, in that context is where we come up with verse 26 and 27. They make everybody really, really nervous. So, Cindy, can I get you to go back and read verse 26 and 27 again? Sure. Out of 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left but only a fearful expectation of the judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Okay, now, we got to go to a couple places. Uh, John, I'm going to have you go to 6-4, and have you read 4, 5, and 6 in just a minute. Uh, and somebody else, would you go to 7-27? Rhonda, give that, okay. We're going to talk here a little bit about, we're going to come. Now, remember, in the context... Encourage one another. Don't forsake the gathering yourselves together because the day is coming. So as verse 26 begins, if your Bible is like mine, it begins with a three-letter word, for. There's a causal statement here. This is why, okay, this is getting ready to happen. And it talks about sinning, going on, sinning willfully. Now, I want you to look back just for a second. If you'll turn back as John reads from chapter 6, verse 4, 5, and 6. John? It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of, of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Because of their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, the Hebrews writer is going to spend a few verses here making a case for what he's dealing with here. But um, what we're dealing with here, now let me fill in your blanks so you don't get too nervous. 
Following the writer's logic, there is no sacrifice left for sin. I want to really zero in on this word sacrifice. This is a causal statement. And as you look back to what John read to us a little bit, the, uh, the, a little bit ago, the great social pressure of their day was to cease being, now this was written, we think, to Jewish Christians, probably living in Rome or somewhere in the Roman Empire. Their great temptation was to leave Christianity and go back to being Jewish only because they could save their hide. All right? Now, but the book of Hebrews in chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter is making a case for Jesus as the great high priest. And he made a sacrifice on the cross. Rhonda, read 727. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Hang on to it for just a second. In Jewish thought, my sin was mitigated by a blood sacrifice. And by the way, the book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats never did take away sin, but okay. But their thought was, in Mosaic law, that sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, removes my sin or takes it away or forgives it. What did Rhonda just read? There is now one sacrifice for all, for all time. It literally, in another place, um, the Hebrews writer is going to say, if you go back to that, you're, sub you're putting Jesus back on the cross again. He's already made a sacrifice for you. So when you think of verse 26 and 27 in terms of the sin that is besetting there, the sin would be a, a sin that you and I, we're going to use kind of a uh, 50 cent theological word here, apostasy. Turning my back on my faith. Now in verse 27, the idea here is that this is not a faithful fear. It's, there's, it says you need to be fearful if you're in that position. Uh, it says here that, uh, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's a, that's a loose translation of an Old Testament passage. But the, but the idea here is, if Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. This is not that fear. This is a non-faithful fear. This is the kind of fear that, that God doesn't want you and I to have. You remember a, a bit ago when we said Jesus says, Jesus believed, Jesus taught that there will be a last day. Do I need to be afraid of that? No. In fact, in the last couple of weeks with all the stuff that's going on in the world, I've been thinking, Lord, maybe it's time before my grandkids have to deal with some of this junk. You know, Wayne? All in. You know, I'm kind of ready. If he's get, you know, an old preacher said if he's uh, if he's getting up a busload to go today, dial me in. Yeah. Um, so I don't need to be afraid of that. Like verse 27 is talking about. This is not a faithful fear. This is not respect in that way. Okay, let's go back, John. I'm going to have you go to 28 and read down through 31 if you don't mind. 
Hebrews 10, 28. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That, that last phrase ought to make you go, you know, okay? Because it is dreadful. All right, now, now if you go back to verse 28 where John began, he, he invokes, the writer here invokes the days of Moses. Uh, in fact, I'm not going to read it, but I put the references for you there. Places like Deuteronomy 7, 2 and 3, uh, Deuteronomy 17, 6. 1915, where literally deserters, and that was the best word I could come up with in my notes, deserters, people who in Moses' day turned their back on God and began to, to go to idolatry or some other thing, were literally stoned to death. It was the law. Yeah. And, and by the way, the passages that I list there, the idea is without mercy, I mean, there's no, uh, but, you know, maybe I made a mistake. I mean, there was no mercy in this. Interesting. So that word apostate means here to turn away from God. And what happened to those who were in an apostate state who once believed but said, no, I don't anymore, or I'm, I'm going to trade in the one true living God for a bunch of little gods that aren't really real at all. So that's, that's where these people came from. No mercy for those who are apostate. And so the Hebrews writer is going to say, if that's true, then I need to not dare tread on God's grace. Look at how verse 29 begins. It's really beautiful. Uh, and by the way, the, my Bible, I don't know what yours says. My Bible says, um, how much severer, how much severer punishment there's a less to more here. If X, then Y. Okay, if X was no mercy in Moses' day, and now we've received the real truth. So if I, if I become apostate or rejection here, uh, I better be careful not to tread on grace. I put the reference, Zechariah 12.10 is the only other place in, in the, the Old Testament where this idea of the spirit of grace is in the scriptures. So I'm, I want to go back and read just that little phrase here from, um, from verse 29. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. There's that phrase that's only here in the book of, um, the book of Nehemiah in the, in the Old, um, I'm sorry, in um, the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. This is Jesus' spirit we're talking about here. Dare I tread on that kind of grace? Now, so... Verse 31 is a sobering wording. Um, the Hebrews writer uses the phrase, the living God, more times than anywhere else in the Bible. Um, it is a 
fearful thing, he says. Um, a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. By the way, how do we know he's living? Because his son is living. Because yeah. his son's living. Remember the old song? We, someday I wish Larry would tee this one up. Maybe I can get Paul to and run it and I'll back him up. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. You know, okay? You'd have to be Baptist or maybe a really good Methodist to know that song. Okay. He lives. He lives. Janet, you know it. You're a good Church of God girl. You know that. All right. So, um, so there's this idea. Now, my question is, uh, in, this, in the context of the sobering wording of verse 31, what areas of your life do you most need to give to the Lord to judge? So it's talking about, I am not the judge. He is. <coughs> so maybe keep that question at the ready when you're reading something on Facebook and you're thinking, ah, wait a minute. What areas of your life do you need to just let God judge it? Okay. Now, let, let's do the rest of this. Cindy, can I get you to go to 32 and read down through 36 and we'll land the plane here. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured a great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to pers persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. We will receive what he has promised. Look at verse 32. What, what the Hebrews writer is doing here is he's not invoking nostalgia. I want you, that's what the word that goes in your blank there. Um, he's not asking them to be nostalgic about the past. In fact, it's just the opposite. These aren't fond memories they had. They had suffered. But he's saying to them, you've been through this before, you can do it again. You've been through this before. Do it again. Now look at verse 33. I want us to just pick out some of the things they had gone through. Okay? Being made a public spectacle, reproaches, tribulation, and then becoming sharers of those who were treated that way. Doesn't sound like a really something I need to look back on and say... Um, I'm really nostalgic for that time. In former days, they had been faithful. Read the words again, verse 33. Made a public spectacle, reproaches, tribulations, and being with those who were treated that way. What does this sound like to you? It sounds like Afghanistan to me. And our brothers and sisters, that if I haven't snopsed it all, and I've seen lots of stuff, but there's martyrdom going on this Sunday morning in Afghanistan by people. If the Hebrews writer was writing them, he'd say, hang in there. Hang in there. It, it's, it, I'm going to take you all the way home. I don't care what they threaten you with. Don't turn your back. That's your hope, he's saying. By the way, guys, we've got to pray for these people. 
There are other places that they're in like tribulation. It's wonderful that we can gather in air conditioning and open our Bibles and do all the things we can do here. But that's the exception, not the rule in so much of the world. And certainly in places you and I are reading about today. So, they had been faithful. He's saying to them, you can do it again. Their great temptation was to reject the Christ they had once accepted. And so his warning in 35 and 36 is don't throw away that hope. It's got a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what was promised. What was promised? Eternal life. In a place where all of that goes away. In a place of wholeness. Now, okay, Brad, I'm going to give you your word. The word you were looking for 45 minutes ago. Cultures are going to rise and fall. Their culture, Ron and I were talking about this the other day, was led by a guy by the name of Nero, who was a bad guy. Cultures are going to rise and fall, but the challenge of faithfulness is always going to remain. Perseverance is resulting in hope and faith. Faithfulness results in faith. I taught from the book of Hebrews for several weeks a lot of years ago. So if some of you are here during this time, you may remember at the end of every class, I would say this. It was actually original with me, although the thought was not original with me. It was just kind of a, something that I wanted to frame the discussion of this book. Are you looking for something better? You won't find a better way. He is not only the better way, as the book of Hebrews tells us. He's the only way. You can trust him in your hardest day. You can trust him. So if you're here today and you're on the stretcher, we want to be faithful to help you carry it, those of us who may not be. But I want to tell you, don't for a moment think, well, maybe I need to try another way. The book of Hebrews has told us over the, these few weeks that we've studied it that this is the better way. <laughs> it's the only way. The true way. The path to peace through faith and my only hope for the future. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Thanks for hanging out with me during these weeks. We'll be in Colossians 1 next week. I'll see you. Bless you. Have a great Sunday.